Good day and welcome to episode two of the Intangible Investor Podcast, brought to you by Knowledge Leaders Capital, where we discuss everything under the sun related to financial markets, economics, and innovation. This episode was recorded on October 16th, 2019. I'm Bryce Coward, Deputy Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager for Knowledge Leaders Capital, and I'm joined by my colleague, Stephen Vanelli, the Chief Investment Officer and Chief Executive Officer of Knowledge Leaders Capital. I think we've got some great content in store for our listeners today. So with that, let's just dive right in. Steve, what can you tell us about the Fed's recent announcement to start buying government bonds again? Is this the start of another round of QE? Well, Bryce, um, let's, let, let's, let's put to the side for a second the, the, the labeling of it and talk a little bit about the, the mechanics and, and the history. So, so our listeners can get a, um, a, a better idea, I think, of, of where we're coming from. Um, I think this story starts back at the end of July, where the U.S. federal government, uh, uh, the president and Congress, uh, reached a, a truce on, on, um, on the budget and basically suspended the debt ceiling, uh, the amount of debt, U.S. Treasury debt that the, uh, the Treasury is allowed to have outstanding, suspended that for two years. So uh, um, after that, in August and September, we saw a flood of treasury issuance um, after that uh, after that deal was struck. And so, you know, each month we can track um, gross and net treasury issuance, um, SIFMA data. So, for instance, in August, um, the treasury gross uh, had gross issuance of $985 billion uh, uh, and net issuance of $179 billion. September was gross issuance of 1100 uh, of uh, 1.103 uh, trillion and net issuance of 199 billion. So it's fair to say that after the the debt deal was reached at the end of July, uh, the federal government started um, uh, issuing uh, a considerable amount of debt in, in August and in September. So considerable that it actually outstripped um, what what the government actually needs for for their spending needs. I mean, if we go back pre-financial crisis before 2008, um, the government's checking account, so to speak, at, at, at the Fed usually carried between five and $10 billion, enough for you know, a day or two's worth of government spending. Uh, that changed, um, and, and in most recent years, as we've been uh, having more frequent debt ceiling uh, political fights in Washington, you've seen a trend where uh, the US Treasury will issue a lot more debt than they need for current operations, and turn around and, and um, deposit the proceeds at the Fed, their checking account. And that's exactly what we saw happen in the last couple months. Um, while uh, uh, US Treasury deposits at the Fed fell to about 130 billion uh, by the end of September, since they've rebuilt by about 190 billion, all the way up to about 320 billion. So the point of that is that substantially all of this, you know, quote unquote, excess Treasury issuance um, went right back onto the Fed's balance sheet as deposits uh, uh, of the federal government, okay? Mm. And so we moved into uh, a situation on September 16th, um, that morning where um, uh, we had a, uh, an instance where what's called general collateral, overnight general collateral rates spiked higher. And so um, there's what's called the, the repo market, and this is a market where um, uh, large financial institutions, primarily banks, insurance companies of the like, will borrow money on a short-term basis overnight in this case. And they'll pledge collateral, and that collateral comes in the form of U.S. Treasury securities. So they'll pledge 
uh, U.S. Treasury securities as collateral to secure an overnight loan. The rate at which that loan is uh, 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 is put out is called the general collateral rate. Okay, and that you know uh, generally. Um, tracks fairly closely with a small spread, say Fed funds, okay? And so that day, um, you had the general collateral rate blow out to uh, uh, almost 10% before it got back under control. Um, and that's what caused the Fed on September 16th to uh, come out and launch uh, a, a repurchase facility. So from the Fed standpoint, a repurchase facility is an asset on their balance sheet. Uh, it means the Fed is in effect loaning money um, out there to the private market. Um, again, they take the collateral of the treasuries and they make the, 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 the loans back out there to the marketplace. Connecting the dots on this, um, the, 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 the point I think is that um, the, 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 the very aggressive treasury issuance uh, of August and September contributed to uh, a depletion of, of, um, uh, of reserves in the banking system. And so um, you had funding constraints hit. And you know that was the Monday after um, the attack on the facility in Saudi Arabia, uh, that, that Monday, uh, September the 16th. And so in the interim, what the Fed did is, is again, launch a standing repo facility in order to satisfy uh, those liquidity demands out there in the marketplace. Um, uh, as of last release of the Fed's balance sheet last Thursday afternoon in their H.4.1 report, um, they had about 178 billion in repos on their balance sheet. Okay, the end of last week on Friday, they came out and said, okay, we're, we're gonna shift gears here and instead of doing um, this repurch uh, repurchase facility and rolling it over every night, we're just gonna start buying uh, assets outright. We're gonna buy 60 billion a month for six months of assets ostensibly to uh, address the shortage of liquidity out there. And so if you think about the Fed's balance sheet, you know, on the asset side of the ledger, there's um, you know, a, line, a couple line items basically called securities owned. Well, these are all the treasury securities that the Fed owns. This is what collateralizes on the liability side of the Fed's ledger, uh, among other things, all the currency in circulation. Also on the Fed's uh, uh, asset side of the ledger um, are these repurchase agreements. And, and again, right now they total about 178 billion. So what it sounds to us like what they're gonna do over the next six months is basically um, attempt to substitute and bring those uh, uh, repurchase agreements back down to zero and increase the amount of securities held by roughly $360 uh, billion in an effort to uh, address the liquidity crunch uh, that, that we see playing out out there. And to be clear, this has been, um, this has been a slow moving train. You know, if we look at, uh, go back a couple of years and, and look at the spread between um, interest on excess reserves and, and the, uh, the Fed funds rate, you know, it was positive 15 basis points roughly as of January 18, uh, when the Fed really moved into um, uh, its second uh, phase of quantitative tightening, um, taking out roughly 900 billion in bank reserves uh, between the end of 2017 and, 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 and uh, July of, uh, of this year. And so um, on, uh, on that day, on, on 916 and 917, you had the spread uh, between interest on excess reserves and effective Fed funds invert to negative 20 basis points. That was the key, and that's what sent the Fed into the emergency mode. 
And because the demand for these repos has not gone away over the last month, um, I think this is why the Fed came out on Friday and announced that they would be buying 60 billion a month um, with the functional uh, effect of kind of transitioning what their balance sheet looks like. Um, it's going to move from, again, having this category of assets called repos really back into a more traditional look where those repo, uh, repos are going to run down and they're sim simply going to buy, buy more assets. Now, with all that, um, <laughs> to, in the last 24 hours, we saw uh, a, an interesting development. Um, Yesterday at about four in the afternoon, uh, general collateral repo rates closed at 195. By midnight, it shot up to 2.4%. Um, and that was in the backdrop of uh, the Fed standing repo facility, which uh, takes in about 75 billion, uh, uh, can have a capacity of 75 billion a night. Last night was oversubscribed, uh, 80 billion and change. So it was the first time it's oversubscribed since uh, uh, September 25th, I believe. So it was an indicator that once again, you were see fun, seeing funding stresses uh, uh, manifest themselves in, uh, in, in the money markets. And so um, the Fed today did their first open market operation following the announcement last Friday. They bought $7.5 billion worth of, uh, worth of bills. But in doing so, uh, you know, they didn't exactly um, uh, bring that general collateral area collateral rate back down into the range, I think, that, that, that most folks would like to see it. It closed the day at 2.05%. So outside of the corridor, uh, the, the, the upper bound and lower bound of Fed funds are 1.75 and 2%. But with the general collateral rate closing outside of the rate, the upper bound of, of Fed funds, it seems as if um, these funding pressures are, 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 are nagging. And now, Back to the addressing the labels. The Fed doesn't want to call this QE, despite the fact in, in, in every substance and form that, that, that we understand it, it looks like QE because they're purchasing assets uh, on the balance sheet. They're going to be increasing their securities held outright. And on the liability side of the balance sheet, that will uh, uh, result in greater uh, deposits at the Fed held by commercial banks as uh, uh, as the money works its way through the system. So to us, it looks, it looks a lot like QE. And I think that um, uh, the Fed is trying to downplay that and say it's not QE that we're, you know, we're only buying short-term bills. And so, you know, everybody's into this analogy of, you know, how much, how much ammo does the Fed have or whatever. And, and I think that there's a, maybe a, 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 a way to look at that, okay? Um, on Friday, the Fed announced that they would be stepping back up to the, to the line at the firing range and start, start you know, laying some shots out there. And so they began that today and they're gonna be, you know, again, shooting 60, 60 billion a month. But what we need to think about is, um, you know, how the complexion of what they're buying could possibly change over time. And this is obviously an unknown and speculative at this point. You know, the, the Fed buying short-term treasury securities, three-month bills, you know, it's kind of like the Fed getting out there and shooting a, a 22, right? So a 22 is a 22 caliber bullet with, a, you know, about a thousand uh, foot per second muzzle velocity when, when fired. So a, a real pea shooter. Now, the Fed in past rounds of quantitative easing have uh, gone out uh, on the duration spectrum and bought longer duration bonds. And so that would be analogous to the Fed kind of pulling out a bigger gun, so to speak, a, let's say a nine millimeter pistol with a 125 grain bullet that shoots at about 1200 feet per second. So you get more energy projected downrange. Even though you're shooting one bullet, you can shoot that bullet with more energy. 
um, you know, you max out most, uh, most you know, biggest semi-auto pistols that they make are 10 millimeter. Well, that's a 185 grain bullet going at 1200 feet per second. The Fed could, if they moved out on the maturity spectrum, like shoot a still bigger bullet. Um, you go up to a rifle uh, um, platform, like an AR platform. Well, that standard, you know, 5.56 millimeter NATO uh, uh, bullet comes out of a 16 inch barrel at 3,700 feet per second. But um, it's also an only a 55 grain bullet. So what's interesting is that um, the Fed is back on the range and they're firing. They're starting to fire, you know, what we'd call a 22. But the fact is they're at the range and they're firing and they have all sorts of weapons at their disposal. And it wouldn't take much now that they're on the line and they're buying and they're firing to simply at some point in the next few months, if they needed to say, well, we're going to start to extend the duration, uh, extend, extend the maturities uh, of the bonds that we're buying in order to provide more monetary accommodation. So anyway, I've gone on uh, uh, too long. Switching gears a bit, uh, Bryce, you've been watching closely as the General Motors strike has played out over the last few weeks. Um, can you give uh, our, our listeners a quick rundown on what's going on with that strike and how it plays into the larger um, theme of, of innovation in the auto industry? Yeah, absolutely, Steve. And, and before we get into that discussion about GM, I, I think it's important just to disclose that, that we don't own GM in any of our strategies. GM is not a company that we would consider to be a, a knowledge leader. So it's, it's not even really in our, in our wheelhouse, in our universe to, um, uh, uh, to, to invest in. But with that said, you know, I think there's, um, there's what you see with the, with the strikes that are going on and, and kind of the, the narrative underneath the surface that, that's a little bit less reported on. So what we're seeing right now is uh, union employees um, clearly demanding uh, some certainty around wages and the number of employees that the GM is going to have moving forward. But I think underneath the surface, there's, there's two real issues at play here. Um, the first one is the trend towards electrification of vehicles. And then the second one is the labor input needed to actually manufacture electric vehicles for, versus a traditional combustion engine vehicle. So um, just moving, uh, talking about that, that first point a little bit, electrification of vehicles. So uh, right now, the electric, uh, electric vehicle market is, is fairly small. In 2018, there were just 1.7 million plug-in and fully electric vehicles sold worldwide. Now, um, the consulting firm McKinsey expects that number to grow to three and a half million by the end of uh, 2019, and then to grow to 14.8 million, call it 15 million, by 2025. So that's a, a, a big kind of hockey stick ramp up in the electric vehicle production over the next couple of years here. Um, and importantly, you know, those projections are before taking into account any massive policy change that, that might um, accompany uh, perhaps a, a Democratic uh, president, uh, uh, a Democratic candidate winning the presidential contest in, in, in 2020, which of course could be accompanied by um, a, a greener policy mix, including incentives to buy uh, and produce uh, electric vehicles, which, which could uh, make those numbers look a lot different than, than even those McKinsey projections. So, um, so there's, there's kind of the, the trend of electrification of vehicles, whether we get the policy change or not. Um, and then, you know, we need to think about the labor input needed to make EVs compared to uh, traditional combustion 
uh, vehicle. So if we think of um, uh, traditional vehicle, the, the, the powertrain component of that, so the, the engine, the, uh, the drivetrain, the, the thing that actually provides power to the wheels, the transmission, the engine cooling system, the exhaust system, the emission control system, all that stuff is really accounts for the bulk of the value of the vehicle. Um, and in fact, it accounts for the bulk of the, the actual man hours to, to assemble or construct a, a vehicle. So if we think of um, just that powertrain component alone, that, that single component accounts for about a quarter of the entire workforce of the uh, US auto industry. So there's about 600,000 auto workers and about a quarter of them work simply on that, that powertrain component alone. Um, so the, the combustion powertrain has about 2,000 parts to it. Those parts need to be built to withstand um, degrees north of 2,000 uh, degrees. So they've got to be a, you know, an extremely, uh, it's an extremely durable part of, of, a, of a car. It takes a long time to produce and it takes a long time to put together. Now let's think about an electric vehicle. So the electric vehicle powertrain only has about 20 parts. Um, those parts take about 3.7 man hours to, to assemble compared to uh, a fully combustion um, vehicle that takes about 6.2 man hours to, to assemble. So, so right there we've got um, uh, about 40% fewer man hours required to assemble an electric vehicle as opposed to a combustion engine vehicle. Um, clearly with the, with the shift that we're seeing towards electric vehicles and away from combustion vehicles, especially over the next few years, that obviously has um, employment and wage components um, sort of baked into it. Now, if we look at you know where GM is investing, you know they're clearly investing um, towards the direction of electric vehicles. They've already announced that they're going to be introducing 20 new electric vehicle models by 2023. Um, but then, if we look underneath the surface and kind of you know, really understand what, what, their, what their mix of investment looks like, you know, we can really start to, to, um, to, to put some interesting numbers around that. So R&D, as you might imagine, is uh, an ex extremely important component of electric vehicle production. Um, R&D investment as a percent of sales, um, just a couple of years ago, was running at about 4, 4.5%. Uh, per year as a percent of sales. It's now running closer to, to five and a half percent of sales. So we've seen a big ramp up in R&D as a percent of sales. And at the same time, um, if we go back to 2016, um, we noticed that capital investment, so investment in fixed property, plant, and equipment has actually fallen by about 20% since 2016. And over that period, um, research and development as a percent of sales has risen by about seven um, by about seven percent, so we can we can see it um, in terms of the 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 product pipeline that GM is planning to 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 roll out in the next couple of years, and we can also see it in in kind of um, the shape that their investment uh, their investments are taking. So, you know, that's the 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 landscape that we're dealing with here in the auto industry, where you know this this shift to electric vehicles is really going to require over the long term, um, just a lower level of employment, it's gonna put pressure on wages. And I think that's really what we're, what we're seeing here is kind of a pushback against some of, some of that innovation. So, um, you know, fortunately, the process of creative destruction that we oftentimes see um, 
you know, will result in more, better, and higher paying jobs, you know, at some point down the road. So those might be uh, software jobs instead of, uh, in, in, instead of manufacturing jobs still in the auto industry. But, you know, sometimes moving from point A to point B can be um, a bit of a rocky transition. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing. Interesting, Bryce. It sounds like we should be on the lookout for, uh, for General Motors to, at some point in the future, move into our universe of knowledge leaders as they're as they're increasing their uh, expenditure on research and development in particular? Well, I would think so, Steve. And, and sometimes, you know, these things can take a couple of years to play out. And, and typically what we see is companies will uh, uh, start investing a lot more in intangible types of, of capital. And um, shortly thereafter, um, you know, they'll, they'll see improvements in their margins and improvements in, um, in, in, in some of the other measures of, of um, becoming a successful, um, a successful innovator that tend to put those companies um, into our knowledge leader universe. So that's something that we'll look forward to. Well, that's great, Bryce. And, and hopefully that uh, uh, educates our listeners a little bit about uh, not just the auto industry, but um, some of the structural changes that are going on as we move from uh, internal combustion engines to electric vehicles. Absolutely. Well, with that, we'll conclude today's podcast. Thank you all for listening to The Intangible Investor, and please come visit us at www.knowledgeleaderscapital.com to learn more about our products and our unique way of investing in global financial markets. Please also send us your comments and feedback by emailing us at info at klcapital.com. As a reminder, next week we're going to be hosting a conference call, so if you didn't get that conference call invitation, please email us again at info at klcapital.com. Until next time, this is Bryce Coward and Stephen Vanelli signing off.